All right, before we start, um, let's go ahead and pray, and, and uh, we'll get started with this. So let's bow our head. Father, we thank you for this, this evening. We thank you for this church and the brothers and sisters uh, in Christ that you've blessed us with here. And thank you for your word and the things that you teach us through your word. Um, we pray for, for our brothers and sisters and just the, all the various things that everyone here is going through. Uh, each of them have different things going on. We have illnesses. We have uh, decisions. We have things that need to be done or decisions that need to be made. And, and we pray for each of those things that you would grant what's, necess- what's needed there. We know that you're powerful. We know that you heal where healing is within your will. But we also know that you provide what we need when we need it so that we can serve you in the circumstances that that you that we we find ourselves in and it's all according according to your will and it's it's for a purpose and uh help us to serve you faithfully in all that we do we ask these things in jesus name amen okay tonight um what we're doing we're going to do an overview of jude and so um with short books like this it's it's kind of fun at least to me to read them through all the way at, you know all at once just read through the whole thing and and when you do that um you kind of get the big picture you can you can see what's going on you can see the flow of things um uh, you can see things sometimes you don't see even when you're looking at the detail cuz you lose track of the big picture and so you can ask questions like you know what are the main things that are going on you can uh think about well why did he structure it this way why did he do you know structures argument in a particular way why did he bring certain things up that he that he brought up and um just all different kinds of things that you can do when you read through the whole book so tonight what i thought we'd do is since jude is such a short book that uh we would just use it as an example of how you how how to do that just go all the way through the thing and um hopefully it'll be helpful uh we're not going to get into the the details much of the book because um, that take a, a lot of time um, and a lot more lessons than just this and so when we as most of us know I mean there's there's some weird events referred to in Jude and um, we won't dwell on those things we're trying what we'll try to do is is rather than get distracted about what they are, what they mean, we're going to see, try to see what point Jude's making with them and then within the flow of the context of the book. So, um, so let's get started. So the question is, all right, book's named Jude. Who wrote Jude? Jude, right. And who's Jude? Right, half, he's a half-brother of Jesus and he's a full brother of James. And it's... Noteworthy, he did not claim to be an apostle, and we'll see in verse 17 that, if you read 17, it, it, he seems to exclude himself from the category of apostles. And something else that's kind of interesting is Jude in, in Greek, and his name actually is Judas, okay? But the translators didn't translate it Judas. And why do you think that is? Bad connotation. Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum said that the name has been translated Jude because it's to avoid the negative connotation of connecting 
Jude with Judas Iscariot. So just just a kind of neat thing to know. And as far as the date Jude wrote, it's hard to pin down. And if you read Jude and then you read Second Peter, or if you read Second Peter and then you read Jude, there's a lot of similarities between Second Peter and Jude. And so, um, so the commentators believe they're they're written about the same time. And some of them say that the way you look at Second Peter, he's he's describing uh, false teachers in the sense as being future. And Jude is describing a time when the false teachers are actually infiltrating the church. And so if that's the case, these commentators get the you know, that's where they get the idea that possibly Jude was written after Second Peter. And so Tom Constable puts the date of writing Jude from between 67 A.D. all the way up to 80 A.D., which is like a 13-year range there. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum dates it somewhere between 67, around 67 or 68 A.D. And uh, just to put that in context, uh, Peter and Paul were both martyred about that same time period in 67, 68 A.D. So another thing to note about the book, it's, it's, it's a type of literature. Uh, it, is a, it is a letter. It's an epistle. Uh, written to someone, but it's called an epistolary sermon. Um, and the, the idea there is, and I'll just show you what Tom Constable said about it, um, Jude could have delivered what he said in this epistle as a homily, as a sermon, uh, if he had been in his reader's presence. Instead, he cast it in the form of a letter uh, because he couldn't speak to them directly. And there are other New Testament epistles that are like that, like Hebrews and uh, James and, and First John. So, all right, since we're doing an overview, it's, I, I've debated about this, but I'm going to put us through it. We're going to read through the whole thing first. Um, and if you can pull out your Bible, you just want to follow all the way through it. Uh, I think it will just help as we go through the thing to already have read it once. So, says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and all the seas around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things, they're destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless great, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So that's the whole book. So from the description of the recipients in verse 1, uh, we can be sure that Jude is writing to believers. Verse 1 describes the recipients as, quote, the called, uh, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And really, only, only believers fit these characteristics. So the book is written to believers. And the way the Greek works here, they're described as the ones who are called, and that's the description of their position. It's a description of the... Uh, with it, They're called, but there's also a description of the two works of God which pertain to that position. They are loved by God the Father, and loved is a perfect passive participle, which means that this love began at a particular time in the past and is and will continue. And the other work is that they are kept for Jesus Christ. And kept means to keep watch over, to guard, to preserve. And kept is also a perfect passive participle, which means that this keeping began a, at a particular point in time and is and will continue. So they are the called, and being the called, they have been and will continue to be loved by God the Father, and they have been and will continue to be guarded by and preserved for Jesus Christ. So what Jude's doing with this very first verse is he's reassuring them that God has and always will love them, and he has and always will guard and preserve them. And they're not, that they're not dependent on themselves for any of this, that they're dependent on God. And so in the context of the whole letter, what might be the reason Jude chooses to emphasize these aspects 
of, of their salvation. Well, they're, they're, he's going to command them. We're going to see that they're about to go into spiritual battle. And they need to know that God loves them and will protect them in this, in this battle. And we've got to remember the same thing. It's very, very important that we remember those things. Also, when we read through the passage, did you notice all the references to the Old Testament? There's a lot of them. And did you notice the references to some things that weren't in the Old Testament, like, like the uh, Michael disputing with Satan over Moses' body or the prophecy of Enoch? Those are extra-biblical, uh, if you want to describe them that way. And so they tell you something about the letter, and they tell us that these recipients, they were well-versed in the Old Testament, and they knew the Old Testament, and they knew about these, these extra-biblical writings. And so uh, they're familiar with these things, and that, that leads you to believe that these were Jewish Christians, um, that because they were Jewish, they knew the Old Testament very well and these other things, and they were Christians. So they're probably Jewish, predominantly Jewish believers. Now there's something about this that we, gotta, we, we have to remember uh, or make a note of, and that's the extra-biblical references uh, that Jude may be using when he, when he refers to these things in his book. Uh, they're thought to be... Some, com some commentators think that they're, one of them may be the apocryphal book of Enoch, and the other one may be another apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. But we need to, we need to know or, or understand that even though Jude is referring to events that are also, poss they're also referred to in these books, it doesn't mean that these extra-biblical apocryphal books are themselves inspired. So you can't make that logical conclusion. What you can say, and they aren't inspired, but what you can say and what it does mean is that whatever event Jude chose to describe in his book happened. And it happened the way at least Jude revealed that it happened. So it doesn't mean that if you go back to these apocryphal books, you can get more... Uh, inerrant details about what Jude is referring to. Uh, those details, they're not part of the canon, they're not part of the inspired Word of God, and so they're not, uh, you can't rely on them to be true. Um, so what, what, what this means is, is that when an event happened the way, we know what's inspired because it's in, Jude has it. It's in Jude's book, and that's where we have to limit our uh, recognition of those things, I guess. Uh, it means that the event happened as Jude described it. And if you try to go beyond that uh, and come up with more details and extrapolate more details from it, then you start, you can, you can get into trouble pretty quick by, by doing that. So uh, even though he's quoting from these other books, it does not mean those other books are inspired. Now, We've established that he has, he's writing to predominantly Jewish believers. And so if you go to verse 3, we'll see what he's writing about. And this is another pretty interesting thing about this book. And it's fun, something that's fun to remember and something that's fun to think about. Um, he began writing about one thing, and then he ended with something else. 
So he began work, he began his work writing to them about our common salvation. And he began writing with the intention of writing something about that, about the gospel to them. And he didn't say what it was. He, he might have been a treatise on some, you know, some explanation of some aspect of the gospel. And it sounds like he was very, very focused on, on that work. He was making every effort to write about that topic. And so at the time began, he was convinced it was something that they needed to hear. But look at what happened. It says something, something changed his mind. It says he felt the necessity to write about something else. In Greek, the word felt, it's not used. And so the phrase is, is it's I had necessity. Uh, the word translated necessity can have the idea of compulsion. So the picture that you get is that the Holy Spirit had made something pretty clear to Jude. That there was an urgent need for him to write something else that took, took precedence over his intended topic. He was working really hard on one thing and the Holy Spirit compelled him to write something else. And that's a bit of an insight into the Holy Spirit's work and the inspiration of Scripture to me. You know, Jude thought he knew what these believers needed to hear, and maybe they did hear it later. Maybe he got around to writing it. But the Holy Spirit knew what they needed to hear at that point in time. And the Holy Spirit also knew what he wanted to preserve in the canon for the rest of us. So Jude may have ended up writing about salvation, but if he did, it's not something that the Holy Spirit preserved in the canon for us, but the Holy Spirit for sure preserved this for us. So I thought that's kind of interesting. So what was this, this urgent need? They needed exhortation to contend earnestly for the faith. And they needed it right away. And the term, the faith, it's not referring to subjective faith, like I place my faith in Christ for my salvation. Um, it's referring to the faith as content, biblical doctrine or biblical truth. And so... And this biblical truth is said by Jude to be uh, once for all handed down to the saints. And so what does he mean by that? And so it's the idea that you get there is that this, this body of biblical truth has been given and it's been handed over to the saints, to believers, as stewards responsible for its preservation and its protection. And so you think of it this way. I mean, God's handed believers a Bible. And we're supposed to make sure that that content of the Bible is protected against corruption and uh, distortion. And so this is apologetics. It's the defense of the faith. And Jude's exhorting, he's exhorting them, and, and through them us, to contend earnestly in defense of biblical truth. And this is what um, Kenneth Weiss says about contend earnestly. He says, the simple verb was used of athletes contending in, in the athletic contest. The word speaks of a vigorous, intense, determined struggle to defeat the opposition. Our word agony is the English spelling of the noun form of this word. The Greek athletes exerted themselves to the point of agony in an effort to win the contest. With such intense effort does Jude say that saints should defend the doctrines of Christianity. So, you know, we're entrusted with the truth. We must protect it against corruption. And we're not to be timid about it. And we're not to be easily dissuaded. And we're to be determined to, to overcome the opponents. 
we have to train hard to prepare ourselves to get ourselves in shape for the contest and we're to expect it to be a struggle and we're to be committed to endure and that's the kind of attitude that we're supposed to have when we contend earnestly for the faith so what happened to make it so urgent that Jude be redirected from his intention to write to them about the gospel what made it so urgent well the church Christ's body the living body of Christ is in immediate danger it's being infected it's being infected by a virus so look at verse 4 whoops let's go back yeah, I didn't get verse 4 in there yeah I did for certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly person who, persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Certain persons have, quote, crept in unnoticed. And they are ungodly. Meaning that they have no reference, no respect, no fear of God. In my opinion, uh, this indicates that the instigators, these false teachers, aren't believers, though they pretend to be. Uh, believers can certainly behave like ungodly men, but Jude is saying that these people are ungodly. And I just don't think you say that about believers. Their behavior can be ungodly, but they aren't ungodly. And they snuck in secretly and stealthily. That's like an undercover agent of the enemy who is sent to infiltrate the church and, and move into positions of influence and use that influence to corrupt and destroy the church. So Satan has sent his agents into the church, ungodly men, to infiltrate it and to, and to corrupt it. So what are they doing? They're spreading corrupt doctrine. They're false teachers and their followers who, through their teaching and their behavior, entice others to join them in their corruption. In particular, this verse tells us that they are doing two things. They're turning the grace of God into licentiousness, and they deny Christ. So what does it mean to turn the grace of God into licentiousness? They're teaching people that God doesn't care how believers live. There's, there's, they're teaching that there's no rule by which we live. By his grace, all sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. So they're saying, just go ahead and live it up. Do whatever you want. Live your life in accordance with whatever your fleshly heart desires to do. But God has already forgiven you. It's, and, and what that is, it's antinomianism. It's the opposite of legalism. And the other thing they're doing is they're denying Christ. And in this context, I don't think that Jude's saying that they're publicly repudiating or disowning Christ. Uh, I don't think they're standing up and saying, you know, they're not followers of Christ. Because I don't know how in the world they could sneak in under the radar in the church, you know, infiltrate the way they have without getting spotted. I mean, I think the church would spot them right away. Uh, I think this means that their teaching and behavior is in total disregard for what Christ has taught us and how he expects us to behave. And so these ungodly men are teaching that believers can presume upon the grace of God and live by the flesh. And this false teaching repudiates. It denies everything that Christ has revealed about grace and how we're supposed to live. 
in Romans 6 deals with this uh, head on. In Roman, and Paul deals, Paul's in Romans 6, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? No, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And in 6.15, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. I mean, that's strong denial of this, this idea, this teaching that these false teachers are apparently uh, promoting. In short, these false teachers and false teaching have infected the church with this deadly doctrine. And Jude indicates that it started out secretly and then it spread. So how does that happen? How can that happen in the church? And, and somehow, I think somehow, some way, that what they're doing, what they're promoting, uh, is attractive to some believers. It's got to be to be able to infiltrate this way. And I don't know what kinds of things back then were attractive and tempting to people in that time and that culture. Probably a lot of the same things that are attractive and tempting to us, uh, just in a different way. But if we can think about it in the terms of our time and our culture. I mean, what's attractive to us? Um, good looks. You know, are they? They look good. They're well spoken. They're persuasive. They got a great personality. They're intelligent probably biblically literate uh, and they can make a great case for themselves from scripture lots of charisma and some in our culture I mean, if you're a celebrity whatever you say goes so they could have some sort of celebrity status but these things these attractive things they mask a carnality that appeals to our sinful disposition they appeal to our flesh and make it sound like it's okay and we know. I mean, our flesh is weak, and it's always it's always looking for a way to rationalize getting what it wants. And if a false teacher can make it sound like what you want is okay with God, then you will give in if you buy into that. Your flesh is very strong, and if you buy into it, you'll want to do it, and you'll you'll fail. So these guys are not obvious. I mean, they begin in secret. They draw people to themselves. They're attractive precisely because they, know, they appear to know what they're talking about. And they'll tell you what your flesh wants to hear. They're a mortal danger to the vitality, the spiritual vitality of the church. But we need to notice something else uh, about, about this that God tells us in, I mean that Jude tells us in verse 4. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there were. Verse 4 tells us that these teachers were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. So they're not unknown to God. Um, they didn't sneak in under God's radar, and they aren't a surprise. He knew about it long beforehand and is written about. The Greek term translated marked out refers to having been written about beforehand. So the idea is that the condemnation of false teachers was prophesied long ago. And so God's not surprised, and, it, and it's not like it's not in his plan for history. These false teachers are part of his plan for history. And these men, they won't prevail because everything God has promised is going to take place. These enemies are going to be defeated, and they're going to be judged. And the church can rest in that and not be afraid of it, or not question whether or not 
You know, this is something that wasn't anticipated. This is like, you know, as a church, we're like, the, we're the living body of Christ. Uh, we've got, I think in Ephesians, it talks about every, put together with every joint and sinew. Everything has its, every part has its function. Um, you know, you have joints, you have sinews, you have organs, you have heads, arms, fingers, you know, you name it. So false teaching is like a virus that infects some part of the body. And so what happens when we get an infection? We get sick, right? But what else happens when we get an infection? There's a system that's part of the body that is there to eliminate infection. What system's that? Immune system. That's what our immune system's for. Our immune system responds to infection to destroy it and eliminate it from the body. So that's what's happening with false teaching. It affects the church, but guess who the immune system is in the body of Christ? It's us. Believers are. As the immune system for the church, we believers have to be able to recognize a virus, and we have to be able to respond to it to eliminate it, or it's going to take over, and it's going to debilitate uh, a part uh, of the body. So in verse 4, Judah's described the problem. In the next section of the book, he's going to expose these false teachers for what they really are. And so when I was studying for this, I was trying to figure out, I was thinking about, okay, why does Jude dedicate almost half the book as this polemic against these false teachers? And he really, really hammers the fact that God's going to judge them severely, as opposed to the five or six verses that um, that Jude counsels us believers about what to do about it. Um, and I'm sure there's myriads of reasons, um, but I thought that three of them I could three I thought up that I would bring up is this. I mean, first. You know, remember he said these false teachers are attractive. And I think he's doing this to completely shatter the illusion of attractiveness of these false teachers by stripping off all the makeup that they have and exposing their rottenness, their ugliness, you know, their foolishness, and, and their ultimate destruction. There, once, once you read through this, these, these false teachers, they should no longer be attractive. They ought to be a, repulsive. And they're no longer going to be seen to be intelligent. They're going to they're be, they're foolish. And so their ability to persuade or attack uh, or, or to influence others should be destroyed by this, by this, uh, this description of them. Second, you know, knowing who these people really are, you know, the church is going to have the confidence to contend earnestly with them. They're not going to be timid, intimidated or, or timid about it. Um, you know, these, these guys can be intimidating, and they act and look and seem to know what they're talking about, and it, you know, it can be intimidating to people. So knowing who they really are eliminates that, um, that kind of a, a problem. And third thing is, is this, remember, this is a written document. It's in writing. It's going to... Uh, this church community or the church communities and the church is going to be able to you know take this document out and show it to people right so they'll be able to show it to 
the false teachers and their and their followers, and hopefully they will see be like holding up a mirror to them, and hopefully they'll see themselves as they really are, and maybe repent and be restored uh, or come come into the church. So let's go to the next section, which is verses five through sixteen, and we're going to break this in, down into two subparts: verses five through ten and then 11 through 16. And so I'm put 5 to 10 up here. I'm not going to read through it. Uh, we'll just refer to that as we go. So Jude begins his unmasking these false teachers by taking his readers, taking us back into history. And so he uses three events to help them remember some things about God that they already know. Um, Jude's helping them learn how to think when they encounter problems like this. He takes them back to the character of God and how God has demonstrated his character in history. And they need to think about what they already know about God to be able to deal with this. Uh, They know that God is sovereign. They know he's righteous. They know he's just. And that he has the authority and the power to judge any creature that rebels against him. And because of this, he will judge. And in history, in Old Testament history, he has demonstrated the execution of his judgment um, clearly, so that so that men will know that there comes a time when God will judge. Um, he may not. He may let people run with a a long lead for a bit, but at some point, he judges. And these false teachers are rebelling against God, and they're threatening God's people in Christ's church, and they're going to be judged for it. So the first thing. Jude reminds them of is the experience of the Exodus generation. So if you remember, you know, God, uh, God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt with very, very public displays of his mighty power, miracles, everything, and led them with, you know, as a pillar of fire and a, and a cloud uh, through the wilderness up until the point they, you know, they went to Mount Sinai, they got the law, and then he took them to Kadesh Barnea at the, on the border uh, of the Promised Land. But when he told them to go in, they refused to believe him. They didn't trust him to deliver the land to them. And so God punished them for it. He made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation of Israelites who didn't believe God when he told them that he would protect them died. And so I think the key phrase in this in verse five is that who did God destroy? It says it destroyed those who were unbelieving. So Jude is comparing the false teachers to the unbelieving Israelites and will suffer God's judgment just as they did. The next thing Jude reminds them of is something that apparently his readers knew about, but it, it's a mystery to us, uh, and it's not something that any humans witnessed. And it deals with an event that occurred in the angelic realm. And apparently, at some point, some time in angelic history, a group of angels rebelled and, quote, did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. And this really isn't, I don't think it's describing the general fall of angels in the rebellion of Satan. I don't think it can be because Jude says that the angels, these angels, are now being kept in eternal bonds for future good judgment. They're bound right now. And they've been kept in bonds since they were since they rebelled. And we know now, we know that today there are currently demons active in our world 
And so I don't think Jude's describing just this general fall. I think he's describing a particular group of angels who are now bound and held for judgment. And so there's various theories about who these angels are and what event Jude is referring to. And I go back and forth on this, but now I think it's probably referring to Genesis 6 when the sons of God had intercourse with the daughters of men. And I think the details here in Jude fit that interpretation of Genesis 6. Um, and I'm not going to really get into that tonight because Jude didn't elaborate on it. Instead, he made, he made that, uh, he used the event to make a point. And so what's the point he's making with that event? Well, look how he describes what the angels did to bring this judgment on themselves. It says they did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. Right? What kind of behavior is this describing? It's the Greek words translated domain as arche, and this word has several meanings. Two in particular that are relevant here. It can mean the beginning state of something, or it can mean and it can mean the sphere of one's official activity, like a realm or a rule of office. And so the Greek phrase translated proper abode can also be translated by their as their own place of dwelling or like their own habitation. So the picture here is that these angels were created to inhabit a particular place that God had made for them and that and then in which they were responsible for serving God. But these angels didn't stay where they were supposed to, where they were supposed to and they they abandoned it. They left it behind. And they went where they're not supposed to go. And they did what God didn't want them to do. And God now has them bound in darkness until they're judged until the final judgment. So what's Jude's point? I mean, how are these false teachers like these angels? I think it has to do with, with rebellion. Rebellion against God's authority with his, with his boundaries. And it's closely related to unbelief. And it's sourced in unbelief. But the focus is on rebellion against authority. God made these angels. He made them. He gave them a place. He made them a place. He gave them a purpose in that place. And they were not supposed to transgress those boundaries. But these angels rejected these boundaries and acted independently of God. And they rejected God's authority to order, to order his universe uh, the way he wanted and they violated his, his divinely established boundaries. And that's rebellion. And, this, and the false teachers are doing the same thing. They're teaching things, they're making things up, basically saying that they, have, they are able to communicate the word of God, and they don't have the authority to teach what they're teaching. They have transgressed the boundaries of Scripture. They have transgressed the boundaries of what God has revealed. And they're rejecting God's authority and they're acting independently of God. And they're going to suffer judgment for it, just like the angels. And so the next example is Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's interesting how Jude describes it. So let's look at verse 7. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, the way this verse is written is saying that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is similar to what the angels in verse 6 did. 
The Greek grammatical construction indicates that the they in this verse is referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the these in this verse is referring to the angels that Jude already referred to in verse 6. So it means that since they, Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way as these, the angels in verse 6, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So the Greek word translated gross immorality means to indulge in illicit sexual relations, and it's describing a, a sexual sin, a fornication. And strange flesh um, is a term sarkos heteros, and it describes flesh of a different of flesh of a different kind or nature. So Jude is describing this sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as illicit sexual relations outside God's natural boundaries. And Jude seems to be saying that this was the same thing the angels in verse 6 did. So it sounds like the angels in verse 6 were capable of indulging in illicit sexual relations with flesh of a different kind. And obviously there's a debate about this. And the, the question is, 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 Joel, is Jude pointing out, is the similarity between Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, these angels, is, is it only similar because both... Uh, violated God's boundaries in some way, not necessarily in a sexual way with the angels, or is the similarity, does it go farther than that? In both instances, the, did the angels do the same, you know, kind of the same things? They, they engaged in sexual immorality and went after strange flesh, human flesh, um, as described in Genesis 6. So that's kind of the debate. Um, and like I said, I kind of, after going through this, I've kind of leaned toward the interpretation that uh, that these angels in verse 6 um, are describing the angels in Genesis 6 and that Jude is relating Sodom and, and Gomorrah to these, these same kinds of sexual sins. Um, so what is... What does Jude say happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God judged them. And he, he says it's an example to those who might be tempted to follow them in their ways. And so it, this judgment's interesting because the grammar here, I, I noticed in one of the commentaries, um, indicates that Jude is not just referring, may not just be referring to the physical death and destruction of those cities, but could also be telling us that the inhabitants are currently... Uh, suffering in Hades right now um, until they're resurrected for the final judgment. Um, so, back to the point. How are the false teachers like Sodom and Gomorrah? So the emphasis in verse 7 is ungodly behavior, unnatural sexual immorality. Unbelief and rebellion lead to evil behavior, and Romans 1 seems to indicate that this will work its way into gross sexual immorality. And it appears that some of these false teachers may have already gone that far. If you look at verse 8, it says, Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. So this tells us that the false teachers are involved in the same sins as the unbelieving Israelites, the rebellious angels, and the sexually perverted people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, and in Greek, he's, he calls them the dreaming ones, or by dreaming, which may mean 
It may mean that they claim authority for their messages based on their dreams, dreams and visions. And they, they totally disregard the lessons of history and have no respect for God or his terrible wrath. So even though God has demonstrated that he's willing to judge these very things, um, they persist. They persist in their unbelief. They persist in their uh, rebellion and in their sexual immorality. And they even go so far as to revile, which means slander or blaspheme or disrespect angels. And verse 9 tells us that not even Michael the archangel had that kind of authority. And so, once again, with this Michael thing, Jude brings up an event which is a mystery to us. Um, although, once again, the readers appear, the, the way it's written, it seems like that they were, they were aware of this. And according to the commentators, this event may be described in another apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses, or it could come from rabbinical comments of Deuteronomy 34.6, where it talks about how God buried Moses, and nobody knows where Moses' uh, body is or grave is to this day. Um, and it may have come from comments about that. Again, you know, Jude doesn't tell us. He just refers to the event. And he's using the event to demonstrate that even though Michael is an archangel and Satan is the enemy, Michael didn't have the authority to rebuke him, but left it up to God. And in their, in their slanderous disrespect of angels, the false teachers were claiming to have power even Michael didn't have. And in a realm, they have no business meddling in. They're just stepping way, way, way outside human authority. And in verse 10 says that they revile what they don't understand. And the point that these false teachers slander things, the point is that they slander things they don't know anything about. Um, they know nothing about the spiritual realm. They know nothing about angels. Yet they slander and they malign them. And they claim authority over them. But it's not just the angelic realm. They arrogantly, they, they pretend that that they know things they don't. Uh, they don't understand God. They don't understand his revelation. Uh, but the verse tells us there is something that they do understand. They understand carnality. They understand their flesh. They understand the worldly ways of thinking. You know, it's thought processes. It's reasoning. Um, just the ways of the world. And, and like unreasoning animals, these instinctive ways of behavior, thinking, natural desires, that's what, you know, that's what drives them. You know, what do animals do? They take care of themselves, and they make sure they get what they want and um, when they want it. And it says, by those things, they're destroyed. So verse 10 is in that kind, of, that kind of section, and now let's move into 11 through 16. And um, this starts with, Woe to them. Okay? Tom Constable says this is an imprecation. It's a curse. It's an imprecation, a curse of doom. It's the opposite of a blessing. And, and it kind of reminds you of, remember in Galatians, uh, where Paul, in first chapter of Galatians, Paul uh, says, he's talking about the false teachers there, who were teaching legalism in a different gospel. And he says, but even, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. 
I mean, Paul pronounces damnation on anyone who, who preaches a false gospel. And Jude's doing the same thing by, by his expression, woe to them. You know, Paul in, in Galatians is dealing with uh, Judaistic legalism. And Jude was dealing, you know, he's dealing with the opposite, antinomianism. Lawlessness. And then Jude proceeds to describe the core of the false teacher's sins. And he does it in terms of three well-known villains of the Old Testament. First, Cain. He says the false teachers are following the same road as Cain. Cain wanted to worship God on Cain's own terms. He wanted to tell God what God should accept as sacrifice, and he got angry and he killed Abel when that didn't work out very well. And so these false teachers think that they can worship God on their own terms and that God should accept their worship. It's like, you know, I'm telling God how I'm going to come to him. I'm telling him that I'm going to do this, this, and this, and you're going to, ex- you're going to accept me. You're going to accept what I'm doing. Uh, they arrogantly tell God how they're going to approach him. That's the error of Cain. Now, Balaam, or that's the way of Cain. Balaam's the next one. And Jude says they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam for pay. They're greedy, and they're all into using God as a way to get what, but what they want. Balaam, this is in Numbers, was a prophet for pay, and he was hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites for money. But if you remember the story, you know, God made him bless the Israelites instead of cursing them. And he did it three times, and the king of Moab got really frustrated with that. But that did not stop Balaam. He figured out, Balaam figured out another way he would get paid. And he counseled the Moabites and the Midianites to, to become a stumbling block to the Israelites. He counseled them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to have their daughters intermarry with the sons of Israel. He wanted, he wanted to buy those things to cause them to turn away from God and to disobey them. And so Balaam was more than willing to counsel people to oppose God if it paid well enough. And these false teachers are the same way. They have no problem leading believers astray if it makes them rich. The third one is Korah. And he says the false teachers have perished in the rebellion of Korah. If you remember in Korah, they attempted a coup against Moses. And they craved, they craved power and authority. They didn't respect that God had appointed Moses as leader over his nation, and they did attempt a coup. They thought they could take over. And they didn't consider uh, that opposing God's appointed leaders was the same thing as opposing God. And what happened to them? Well, God opened up the ground and swallowed them up alive, and they all went down to Sheol, and then God closed the ground right back over them. And, you know, he did it right in front of all the Israelite nation. And in that passage, if, if you remember, you know, he told, told everybody to get away from the tents of Korah. And they did. And the earth opens up, and there goes Korah and his family and everybody else down the hole. Um, that's an object lesson. I, I would, that would scare me to death. Apparently, these false teachers are the same way. They don't recognize God's authority or the authority of the church to, to rein them in, and they sought to take over leadership in the church. 
So moving on to verses 12 and 13, Jude's going to use five illustrations from nature to describe what these false teachers are like. They're hidden reefs that cause shipwreck. In this sense, they infiltrate the fellowship and communion of the local church. They work their way in, they get people to like them, they listen to them, you know, the people listen to them, and then they wreck the church. And now these love feasts being referred to, these are the regular feasts where the church would gather for meals and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so these men attended these feasts for their own selfish motives. They, they didn't care about the church or the people in the church. They were there to uh, get something out of the church for themselves. They were going to take care of themselves um, by doing these things. And so they're, they're apparently unaware of and, and are completely disregarded Paul's instructions about communion in 1 Corinthians 11. And the fact in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that Paul said that believers had been disciplined to the point of death for abuse of communion. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about because, you know, is it possible that God allowed these false teachers to come in and take communion and abuse communion without the same consequences as the ones in Corinthians? It doesn't say. It doesn't say they were dying, but we know the Corinthians were dying because of it. Um, second thing that the, the um, false teachers are like, they're clouds without water carried along by winds. So we can relate to that one pretty well, especially this summer. Clouds without water, they have no substance, right? You can see a cloud, looks like it could bring rain, and then you got nothing, and it just blows away. And the only thing these clouds, as we know, provide is false hope. I mean, you're always looking for clouds. Is it going to rain? No, it's a false hope. They can't deliver. So the false teachers do the same thing. They look good. They sound good, uh, particularly by abusing Scripture. And then they, and they sell false hope, and then phew, they just blow away. Third thing these guys are like. They're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. So these autumn trees should have fruit, but they don't. And there's, there's a lot of speculation trying to figure out what, what he's meant by doubly dead. And so this is, for what it's worth, this is my take. We've all seen trees, you know, they look dead, right? And they didn't produce any fruit that year. But these trees, I've got a fig tree like this. It still has viable roots. Right? So it looks dead. It looks like everything above ground looks dead. But the roots, if you, if you prune the tree back, it can still grow and it still might produce fruit later. However, some trees are totally dead. They have no fruit. They have dead leaves. They have dead branches. They have dead roots. And so there's, there's nothing that you can do about them except for uproot them and burn them. And so what I think Paul, I mean, uh, Jude is comparing these false teachers to are just root-dead trees. They have no source of life. They have no energy. It's impossible for them to ever produce any fruit. Fourth thing, wild waves casting up shame like foam. This is raging sea waves that generate filthy sea foam, and we've all seen that on a beach. Um, it's like their behavior is is bringing up their shameful deeds to the surface of the water where people can see it. And they're like, fifth thing is like wandering stars. And the term wandering stars could mean planets, um, 
which move differently than stars, or it could be referring to comets or meteors, you know, which appear and then disappear. And either way, I think the point is that stars could be used for navigation, but planets, um, you couldn't navigate using a planet or a comet or a meteor, because if you did, you'd go way off course. So what these false, that's what these false teachers are like. They persuade people to rely on them and show them the way, but they're no good, they're no good for navigation. Whoever relies on them gets lost. And it's because they lead people astray away from God, they're doomed, uh, they're doomed to eternal punishment. For them, the black, the black darkness, the separation from God, has been reserved forever. So in verses 14 and 15, um, Jesus describes the judgment that's coming for these false teachers. And we said before that they're not unknown to God, and they're not a hitch in his plan. I mean, that's a, another thing you get by reading through this book all at once. You can, this, this keeps popping up. Jude keeps reminding them that this is not a surprise. Um, and now he's going to talk about Enoch's prophecy. And he says, seven generations after Enoch, after Adam, Enoch prophesied about how God is going to execute judgment on the ungodly. And that's in verses 14 and 15. Let's see if I get that here. No, I didn't. Oh, well. It's also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, from what we know from Scripture, what does it look like this is describing? It's describing when Christ, it says when Christ comes with his holy ones, this passage says holy myriads to execute judgment. This is the second coming when Christ returns to earth with his church to deliver believing Israel and establish the millennial kingdom. And remember that when the millennial kingdom begins, all living unbelievers will be judged and removed from the earth. And only believers will be on the earth at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So there's going to be unbelievers laid on at the end of the millennial kingdom, but none at the beginning. So the false teachers living at the time the millennial kingdom is, is uh, instituted, uh, they're going to be judged and removed from the earth. So notice also the elements of this judgment. They're going to be convicted of their works and how they did them, their ungodly deeds done in an ungodly way, and their words, all the harsh things which they've spoken against him. And Jude connects these things to the false teachers in verse 16, where he says, These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So they're convicted for their words. They're grumblers, like the Israelites who grumbled against God in the wilderness. And they find fault, uh, like the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, they speak arrogantly. They teach authoritatively, but know nothing. Uh, they flatter people for personal advantage. And then they're going to be convicted for their ungodly works. They're following after their own lusts. Okay, so let's think about what Jude's done in these first these verses about the false teachers because we're about to move to what he wants us to do. He's made it very clear that they're classed with those who will forever live in infamy. And it's, it's almost like this passage is the opposite of 
uh, you know, the Hebrews 11 Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, this is the Hall of Infamy. Uh, you got the Exodus generation. You got Genesis 6 angels. You got Sodom and Gomorrah. You got Cain. You got Korah. You got Balaam. And God judged all these and their followers severely. No Christian, particularly a Jewish Christian, in fact, no Jew, would ever want to be associated with these groups. So it's like Jude's hung a sign on them that says, you know, leper or radioactive or something. I mean, it's like the Korah instance where God told the Israelites to, you know, get away from the tents of Korah. Um, it's the Holy Spirit saying through Jude is saying, you know, this is what you're dealing with. These people are bad and they're under judgment and they have to be stopped. And you can't let them take you or your brothers and sisters down with them. So starting with verse 17, Jude's going to turn to um, his readers, you know, who we said were Jewish believers, and they're going to discuss how they're supposed to earnestly contend for the faith. And so first he wants them to remember and understand once again, like we said, this is all part of God's plan. I mean, he does it over and over in the letter. God's in control. Um, so look at verse 17. It says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. The apostles described these false teachers and what they would do to a T. God has given us this information so that we can prepare ourselves to deal with it. Uh, it comforts us. It keeps us calm when it looks like things are falling apart. And it gives us, it, it gives us the confidence that through his abundant power, you know, we can handle the circumstances. God told them, and he's telling us, this is, this is going to happen. And we shouldn't grumble and complain about it happening. Um, we need to be prepared to serve God under those, those circumstances. And in a fact, in a, in a sense, uh, we should rejoice that God's plan is working out just as he said it would. And that he's called us to serve at this point in time. You know, it's frustrating. It's not easy, but, but it's good, and it's what we're called to. So look at Jude 20 through 23, and it tells us what to do. Notice there are two parts to this. There's a self-protection part, and then there's a kind of an engagement in battle part. The self-protection is the building up the immune system, the immune system of the church, so that it's healthy enough to detect and engage the virus of the false teaching. The immune system, then after that, after when it's healthy and it's, re and it's built up, the immune system needs to attack the virus and wipe it out. So verses 20 and 21 describe the self-protection. How we protect ourselves against the attractions and the temptations of the false teachers and their teaching. So look at those, look at those verses. There's a command in verse 20, or actually 21. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's an imperative. That's a command. So keep is the same word used in verse 1, which we remember we said was to keep watch over, guard, or preserve. And so the command is for them and us to do what it takes to make sure we aren't persuaded 
by the false teachers and turned away from God. The phrase in the love of God is describing a place of blessing and enablement. So if we keep ourselves in the love of God, we're in a realm where all his powers and his blessings are available to us. His power will protect us. If we turn away from God, we take ourselves outside this sphere or realm of blessing, and we're defenseless. And an illustration of the way this works is, is the Mosaic, is the Mosaic Covenant. You know, under the Mosaic Covenant, we know there were blessings for obedience and there were curses for disobedience. And the Israelites were commanded to obey and keep themselves in a place where God would bless them. And so that's keeping themselves in the love of God. But if they didn't obey, they moved out of that realm of blessing and God would remove his protection from them. And so, I mean, that doesn't mean that if we don't keep ourselves in the love of God that we lose our salvation. It doesn't mean that. Or that God somehow rejects us as his children because he doesn't. And once again, Israel is a great illustration of that. Uh, under the Abrahamic covenant, we know they're God's chosen nation and the nation will never lose that relationship and God's going to deliver what he promised to them. Um, his promise is unconditional. And just like Israel, by faith in Jesus Christ, we become God's children and we're always going to be. Uh, he's not going to disown us. He's going to always love us as his children and our future with him is certain because it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on him. So keeping... Think of keeping the, in the love of God as making sure within a realm of blessing. Like when Israel obeyed in their Mosaic Covenant and not under the realm of cursing like when Israel didn't obey under the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, it's another way, I think, of expressing, you know, maintaining your fellowship, being in fellowship with God like we talk about all the time and confessing our sins and under 1 John 1, 9 and being restored to fellowship. Uh, when we're in fellowship, we're, in, we're keeping ourselves in the love of, of God. Um, and notice, too, that this is something we're responsible for. God is always faithful to us. He always fulfills his responsibilities to us. Um, we're the ones that can do the things that take us out of the place of blessing. And we're the ones that can do the things that keep us in the place of blessing. And so... Just like the nation of Israel was responsible for keeping themselves in the realm of God's blessing. Okay, so we're commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God. So how does Jude tell us to do that? That's in verse 20. There's two things. We keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. And the second thing is praying in the Holy Spirit. Building ourselves up is a Greek word, uh, <laughs> epoikotomeo. And it has the idea of building on something that is already built, like building up a house on a foundation that's already been laid. And so when a person places his faith in Christ, the foundation of his life is laid. His sins are forgiven, and he's no longer in any, any condemnation. He's regenerated. He's given new life. He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and all the blessings God has promised are available. Uh, and this is the foundation. Um, the most holy faith is a reference back to verse 3 where we're commanded to contend earnestly for the faith. And we know what that is. The body of the faith is the, uh, the body of biblical truth that's been, been given us. So we build on this foundation that was laid when we believed by knowing and doing the word of God. 
This is our responsibility. Just like the Israelites had to know and obey the Mosaic Covenant in order to keep themselves in the place of blessing, we have to know and obey the, what, the Word of God uh, what, to know what God wants us to do. We have to know and understand the Bible. And when we know what it says, we have to do it and not ignore it. We have to live by faith. And that's how you build yourself, uh, that's how you build yourself up. It's doing what it takes to mature spiritually. And that's the first way we keep ourselves in the love of God. The second way, Jude says, is to keep our, is to by prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit. So what, is, what does in the Holy Spirit mean? When is prayer in the Holy Spirit and when isn't it? Um, in the Holy Spirit des- describes a place or a realm. A, a believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8, 26 and 27 describes how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. And when we come to God in prayer, you know, like many, many times, we don't know exactly what God's will is in that particular circumstance. But God, but Holy Spirit does know. And he intercedes on our behalf so that our prayers are in accordance with God's will. So when is prayer not in the Spirit? Well, when we ask for things that clearly are contrary to God's will according to Scripture. So we need to constantly pray, but we need to make sure that our prayers are are in the Holy Spirit. So what do we pray for? We pray for everything we need to pray for in order for God to help us keep ourselves in his love. And I can't even list all those things. You know, understanding, wisdom, courage, love, peace. It's, it's a long list. So, okay, so in verses 20 and 21, we have the command to keep ourselves in the love of God, and we have instructions about how to do it. Okay? The last part tells us what our attitude is in this. We're to be uh, anxiously awaiting the return of Christ and the mercy that will be ours for eternity. We work hard, we persevere, we endure because we know that Christ, our Lord and Master, is returning for us, and he's going to bring us safely into his presence, and we're going to remain there in eternity. We know, we know that Christ has a job for us to do now, but we do that job knowing that eternal freedom from our, from, from our struggles in this present world um, awaits us. And as attractive and tempting as these false teachers may be, they can't deliver anything other than despair of the future and and uh, you know temporal satisfaction of the flesh. Um, you know Christ delivers; he delivers life and freedom. The false teachers deliver death and despair and fool and fool and they're fools. So that's our self-protection. In verses 22 and 23, Jude talks about how we should attack the virus. And these verses are difficult to interpret, and there are several opinions about them. Um, But it looks to me like they're describing three categories of people. Those who are doubting and in danger of being persuaded by the false teachers. Those who have already been persuaded and are in danger of God's discipline. And then those who are all in and are actively uh, spreading it. So whether these groups are believers or not, it isn't stated, and there's differences of opinion about that too. So the first category of people, this is those who are doubting. Now these are people who don't know what to think about the false teaching, and they're seriously, sincerely trying to figure it out. Um, The use of the word doubting 
kind of makes me think that these are weak believers whose faith is being tested. And so what does Jude say to do about them? We're supposed to, we're supposed to show them mercy, meaning that we should not shun them but come alongside them and help them. We need to recognize their struggle and do whatever is needed to help them through it. And that's a command. So we all need to be vigilant, vigilant to recognize when this is happening and be prepared to minister to a vulnerable brother or sister. The second category of people are those who are persuaded and are living according to the false teaching. And this passage makes it sound like the fire has started and these people are in imminent danger of being consumed. Which makes me think that Jude may be describing believers who, in, who are in imminent danger of severe discipline. Things are urgent and time is of the essence. And Fruchtenbaum says that the Greek word used in this context implies strenuous effort on our part. And the picture you get is that someone's house is on fire and that they're trapped inside and it's only a matter of time before they're consumed by the fire. Judas, Jude says that we need to make every effort to save them. We have to give it everything that we have to snatch them out of the fire. And that's like a fireman. We're always on call and we have to be prepared to set everything aside to rescue a brother or sister from this kind of imminent danger. And this involves wisdom, personal commitment, and risk, and risk uh, to the ones doing the rescuing. But we have to be prepared to do it. And then the third category of people, are, that describes people who are all in, and they're actively spreading the false teaching. They're false teachers themselves, and I think this category could possibly believe, be believers and unbelievers. So how does Jude tell us to handle these people that are all in? It says we're supposed to have mercy with fear. We have to engage them, but in engaging them, we have to recognize that we are very vulnerable to being contaminated by their sin. These people are very dangerous, not just to weak believers, but to mature believers as well. And we have to be very, very careful. When Jude says we do this, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh, he's stating the attitude that's required to deal with this type of person. I mean, hate describes a you know, strong aversion to something. A, a, you detest something. Um, so if we're, if, if we're going to engage with this type of person, the one engaging with them must, must detest their sin. Otherwise, he's opening self, himself up to temptation. We have to recognize, I mean, we all have our vulnerabilities, and we need to recognize them and not put ourselves in a position for Satan to capitalize on them. This is just a situation that is, we have to be very careful. And it's interesting that Jude doesn't expressly command the church to kick these people out of the church community. Um, due to the harshness of this indictment, um, it seems pretty clear that they don't have any business being uh, being around, um, and I can't see them showing up to the communion anymore after this letter. Um, but they will still be influential in the community, and I guess because of that, they need to be dealt with. So, the conclusion, um, which I'm sure you're glad to hear, Jude concludes with a benediction that we hear every Sunday morning after the 10:45 service. And so now you can hear it and you can think about it in the context of the rest of Jude. And it assures us that God's able to protect us during this life and he can bring us safely into his presence in the future. And he will do it. Um, there's going to be setbacks, but we, we don't need to fear defeat because we're safe in his hands.
And God can do this because he alone is God Almighty, and he's our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let's close by reading the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for just all the things that you you teach us through it and, and, and how you have um, emphasized so much through it that you are in control, that the things that appear to be happening that are out of your control, that are opposing you, that are our enemies, that even when enemies seem like they're making gains, that you are in control. You know this would happen. You prophesied that it would happen. Uh, you will judge it in your time and in your way. And, Lord, we can take these things and we can be confident and we can we can serve you by contending with the false teaching uh, and, and in all the other things that we encounter during this life when we're, uh, we're living here physically on the earth. And we ask you to just be with us after this service, take us all home safely, and be with the ones that aren't here. We ask the same in Jesus' name.